Well, hey, good morning, Brookside. It's great to see you, and uh, isn't it fun just to recount the things that God is doing in our midst? Uh, we're so incredibly, uh, so incredibly grateful for God's presence and, and just the activity of God. Um, I shared this in an email uh, this week, but I just wanted to uh, briefly uh, mention it here as well. Um, just wanted to say thank you, Brookside. We ended our fiscal year uh, last week, and I just wanted to let you know we finished uh, in a strong place. Uh, we ended up hitting our general fund target, and uh, so thank you for your generosity. You know, each and every week as you give your tithes and your offerings, um, you're allowing us to impact the lives of people, and I just want to remind you that you're impacting the lives of people, that eternities are being changed by the work of God, and so just wanted you to hear on behalf of our staff and our elder board, um, thank you. Thank you for your continued uh, generosity. Uh, it's been a fun week around here. Uh, on Friday morning, it was fun to see our high school students and our middle school students. They were loading up for a fun <clears throat> day trip that they had together. And, uh, and then also on Friday morning, we had our girls track camp. Our, our girls, it's called uh, Teen Reach Adventure Camp. Uh, they were coming to the church and they were getting on a bus and they were heading out for camp for a week. And if you don't know anything about that camp, it's a really neat opportunity for us as a church because that's a way that we're able to see these, many of these students that have been, or kids that have gone through the foster care system, this is a camp now for them uh, in their teenage years. And so boys track camp is next weekend, and so we're praying uh, big things uh, for both of those. So fun things happening. And then this week, um, boy, if you didn't know, we have got our Brookside uh, Kids Ministries first ever summer camp uh, this week. Uh, get this, there's 274 kids registered, 100 volunteers ready to go. I mean, I just kind of hit, hit that and I go, wow, that's going to be awesome, right? This place is going to be hopping. And so it's, it's really, though, it's fun, isn't it, to think about the impact that that's going to have on, on the city, you know? I heard from one gal the other day and she just said, man, we've got seven of our friends, our kids' friends are going to come from all over the community and just so excited about that. And so just a really fun thing to think about what, what God uh, is doing. So we want to be praying uh, specifically uh, this week for them. That's Monday through Thursday every evening. Well, we're this morning jumping into a new series. And uh, what I'd love to do, kind of in light of all the things that are happening, and also in light of the fact that we're diving into this new series, uh, uh, as it was mentioned, it's the series that's going to take us through the life of uh, parts of the life of David. I'd love for us, though, to pray together first and just say, God, would you, uh, would you speak to us, not only this morning, but God, would you really, uh, we want to pray big things for this whole, whole series. So yeah, would you pray with me and, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, it is so fun for us to be able to recount the good things that you're doing in our midst. And um, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for your continued provision for us as a church, Lord. We, we're so grateful for that, Lord. We stand kind of in awe of the things that you do. And this morning, we just want to say to you, Lord, even as we look at the next seven days, we pray for the next generation. Um, Lord, we're so grateful for this kids' ministry team. We're so grateful for all of these volunteers. And Father, we just pray that as the next generation comes to this campus this week, we pray for those 274 kids. We pray that you would do something so significant in them. Lord, we pray that the next generation would be the greatest generation of faith that's ever been. And so, Father, that's a huge prayer, but we pray that you would raise up men and women out of that group, out of those group of kids, God. Um, Father, thank you for this morning now, and we just pray, Lord, that your word would come to life. Um, God, we pray that, that throughout this series, Lord, that you would have specific things, just individual things that you would long for each one of us to hear. So we give you this time. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, our new series is called David, Grit, and Glory. And um, what I love about this series is we're going to get to learn, I think, some very practical lessons from a person who had his ups and his downs. We're going to be able to, to really look at this man, this guy called David, who would become a king. And I think we're going to be able to learn some things that we're going to go, oh, I can relate to that. Oh, I need to, I need to hear that. God, you had, that, you had a word just for me on that. Even just this week, I was thinking about the life of David, and I was thinking about what we talked about last week. If you were gone, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we actually kind of had a preview of just one glimpse into the life of David. And if you remember, what we saw was there was, an op- there was a point in David's life when his back was against the wall. There was a point in David's life where he was stressed out. Everyone was turning against him. And what we saw, though, in that moment, again, it's just something so practical, so helpful for us. We got an insight into his life. And what did David do in that moment? He just kind of palms up in that kind of a posture to God. The text says that he pulled away. And what did he do? It says that he found his strength in the Lord, his God. Um, one of those things that if we do that, because we can all relate to that, right? I mean, we all have experiences, times in our lives. Maybe you're in a season right now where you'd say, man, I'm really pushed. This is really a tough season for me. And it's one of those times, though, you can look at the scriptures and go, okay, that's a guide for me. That's so helpful. That can take serious pressure off of me if I'll just go before God, open hands, posture before him and say, I find my strength in you today, God. I give you what I cannot take. Uh, That's a great place to be. And so as we go through this series, I think we're going to see things that are faith-inspiring. I think you're going to see things that you just go, oh, that's practical. I can really use that. If you're brand new to church, uh, I love that you've come at the beginning of this series. Um, I pray that you'll continue to come through it because I believe this. I believe that even if you're brand new, even if you're just looking into the claims of Jesus Christ, I think this series will be really helpful for you. I think you'll get a good window into, okay, what does it mean to follow God? What, what does God think of me? What does he long for me? And so my prayer even this morning is that you'd be able to leave here even at a kind of a, with having a, a real clear starting place. Okay, where do I go from here? So this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of David's life. And we're going to look at the beginning of his life. It's a good place to start. Not necessarily the beginning of his life, but the beginning of his, you could say, his, his kind of his leadership life. And we're going to look at that because it really sets the foundation for everything that we're going to learn about David. Let me ask you this. Have you ever ever thought about the fact that oftentimes there are things in your life that people never see you do, but they shape your life dramatically? Have you ever thought about that? That there are things in, in, in your life, that there are outcomes, things about you that get shaped in places and at times that people never see. We're going to find this morning that what God can do sometimes in the quiet place can impact us in huge ways. One of the things going, kind of going right along with that, though, this morning is this. I love how we see in the scriptures, and we'll see this this morning. I love how we see routinely in the scriptures that God tends to use people in significant ways that sometimes we would least expect. We sometimes see it throughout the scriptures. We'll see this in the life of David, that God will take somebody who makes huge mistakes That God will take somebody who has doubts. That God will take somebody who maybe other people have written off and God will use them in significant ways. We're going to see this morning above all else, what is God looking for though? What is God looking for? When God looks at you, when God looks at me, 
When God looks at any of us and he says, I long to use your life in a significant way above everything else, what rises to the top of God's list when he says, but this is what I want you to give your attention to because this is what I'm looking for. But even beyond that, even beyond just, hey, I want to use your life in a significant, eternally impacting way, just as a father who loves you, what does God look at your life and say, give your attention to this just because I'm a good father and I love you? I want to um, tell you the story this morning to kind of set things up for where we're going. It's a story of this guy, and his name is Michael Plant. And Michael Plant grew up in Minnesota, so he's got to be a good guy, right? And, and later in life, he became known on the international front. He became known as this world-class sailor. And so as he goes through his life, he becomes known as this guy that would often take these solo voyages across the Atlantic Ocean, across the, the Pacific Ocean. Well, in 1992, Michael Plant, he goes up to the northeast coast of the United States, and he's setting sail for France. It's a huge journey. It would take a couple of months. And he's on his brand new boat. There he is. That's the boat. It's called the Coyote. That was his maiden voyage. And as he's waving goodbye to his friends, to his family, and to you know, all the press that were gathered that day, it was a big deal. And as he's waving goodbye to them, everybody on shore knows this about Michael Plant. They know that that guy has tremendous experience. They know that Michael Plant has incredible expertise. He's so sharp in sailing. They also know that Michael Plant, this new boat, they know that it has the best technology that money can buy. And so Michael Plant waves goodbye. And, and even though it's, it's said of him often that he was a very independent guy, every 24 hours Michael Plant would check in. And as he waved goodbye to his friends and they thought, okay, we're going to see him in France in a couple of months, as he waved goodbye to them, sure enough, 24 hours goes by, he calls into the ground station, everything's good. He does that continuously up to day 10. Day 10 comes, for 24 hours, they hear nothing. And so ground station, they begin to kind of wonder what's going on, so sure enough, they check the weather patterns, and there's a storm that's been brewing right in the area where Michael Plant is. And so they think to themselves, okay, he'll be fine, he's just, he's busy, he'll get through that, he'll get through, break through the storm, and we'll hear from him. Another 24 hours go by. No word from Michael Plant. And so the United States and Canada, they send out search planes, and they begin to look in the last known location where Michael Plant was. Another 24 hours goes by. No word from Plant. So they tell the airliners, and the, in the, in the, the airliners that are, that are flying in that area, they say, make sure you get your, you know, your emergency channel on, and if you intercept anything and you hear this, this stranded sailor, you know, let us know. And, and then they tell all the, the, the freighters and the ship liners, they say, hey, be on the lookout for Michael Plant. He's, he's missing. We don't know where he is. Well, this goes on until day 15. On day 15, a freighter who's about 450 miles away from the Azores Island, he sees the coyote. And he sees the coyotes totally flipped upside down. And so their hope is this. Their hope is that Michael Plant is somewhere roaming around the North Atlantic Sea in his state-of-the-art emergency raft. But when they lift up the boat up onto this freighter, they notice that the, that the emergency raft is half inflated and it's, and it's stuck underneath the hull of the boat. Not a good thing. And so they know this. Michael Plant has died. He's died at sea in the fall of 1992. Now, when they pulled that boat up, though, on to that freighter, they knew exactly what had happened. It was no mystery to them what, what went wrong. So let me just draw this for you. Bear with my drawing a little bit. Okay, let's just say this is, this is the water line, and 
I'm going to tell you what things are as I go because you'll need to know and you won't be able to tell. All right, that's a, that's a boat. All right, and that's a sail. We'll call that the main sail. Sorry, not a lot of room for the crew. There's the crew. That's the other sail. Okay. Now, here's the thing. On a sailboat, and they knew this was a problem right when they saw this. On a sailboat, you've got obviously some things that are above the waterline. You've got some very important things, right? You've got all the rigging up here. You've got these cool sails. You've got the deck, everything. Lots of very important stuff. But on a sailboat, the most important thing is not above the waterline. The most important thing on a sailboat is right down here, right? It's called the, it's called the keel. It's called the ballast. Uh, same thing. And here's what this is. This is a huge weight that allows a sailboat to do this. Even in the fiercest of wind, a sailboat will blow clear over, but because of the massive weight of the ballast, the boat, even if it goes almost sideways with the, perpendicular with the water, it will come back up by design. I got into sailing last summer, and my second time out alone, I come I kind of going down the, the, the little area there, and then all of a sudden I get past this, um, this wall of trees, and this huge gust of wind comes. I'm alone, first time, don't know hardly what I'm doing. I've got the sail way too tight. And so this wind comes, it hits the boat like a force. The whole boat just whoosh goes over. Everything in the cab, just everything just went flying to the other side. I about soiled my pants. It was horrible, right? And so I'm hanging on for dear life. But you know what happens in a sailboat? And I heard it was designed like this. I never wanted to test it, but I thought, why not on the second try? And so, so sure enough, what does it do? The ballast, it pulls the boat. As soon as the boat goes to this angle by its design, the ballast pulls the boat looking directly into the wind and things die down and you're okay. Now they noticed this though. They noticed that when they pulled up Michael Plant's boat, his 8,000 pound ballast, the keel of the boat, it was missing. It was gone. And they don't know if he hit something. They don't know if there was a, you know, a defect in the manufacturing. They don't know what it was, but they knew this. Even that day, with the slightest level of breeze, that boat, in a heartbeat, would have been flattened. It would have been tipped right over. And so there was no doubt what went wrong with the boat that day. It would have caused a huge catastrophe. This morning, we're going to be talking about this. We're not going to be talking about above-the-waterline stuff. This morning, we're going to be talking about what's below the waterline, because this is what's true. It's true in sailing, and it's true for us. In sailing, this is the greatest, I think, principle of sailing, you must have more weight below the waterline than you do above the waterline. And in life, there are certain things that people can see. There are things that we do. There are things that how we look. There are all sorts of things above the waterline, things that are actually important. But there are certain things that are below the waterline. There are things that nobody sees that shape who you are more than anything else. And this morning, we're going to see in the scriptures that as God looked at David, he said, David, I care more about this below the waterline than I do about anything else. And so that's where our passage is going to take us this morning. I want to tell you, though, the context of what's happening in the life of David and even really what's happening historically at this time. In Israel, at this time, Israel was governed by, or you could say Israel was led by, a group of men, and they were called judges. Now, don't think like a judicial judge wearing a robe. 
These judges, they were in and amongst the people. Uh, They were leading. They were governing the people. They were helping make decisions. Uh, Oftentimes, they would uh, lead into battle or be with the troops in battle. They were with the people. And so each region of Israel had a judge. There would be one for the southern region, one for the middle of the country, and one for the northern part of the country. So there's this leader at the time of David, and his name is Saul. He's a judge. Now, or Samuel. And Samuel was a guy that he was known as a little bit higher, I would say, than the rest of the judges. You could say that he was the closest thing that Israel had to a national leader. That's what, who Samuel was. And so they thought of Samuel, Samuel, wow, you're a very important person. But they also knew this about Samuel. Samuel, we love your leadership, but Samuel, you're getting old. And so since you're getting old, they looked, at, they looked at Samuel's sons and they said, Samuel, we don't want you to pick one of your sons to become our leader because your sons don't follow in the same ways that you do. Your sons, they lack the integrity, they don't have the character. We don't want your sons to lead us. And so Samuel, we want you to appoint a king over us. Samuel, we want to be like, and they looked at the other nations around them, they said, we want to be like them. We want to have a king to rule over us. And so it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. It says, so all the elders of Israel, they gathered together, and they came before Samuel at, at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old. And I hope they like, you know, said that a little nicer than that, you know. You are old, and, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But here's the thing. God didn't want to do that. God didn't want the people of Israel to be ruled by a king. God wanted the people of Israel to be different, actually. God wanted the people of Israel to stand apart from all of the other nations. And so God says this to Samuel. He says, Samuel, it's not about you. And Samuel, it's not even about your sons. The people of Israel, they've rejected me. I should be their king. And they should be a nation that stands out. They should be a nation that is a light in a dark world. They should be a nation that champions justice, that releases compassion. But they're not, and they don't want that, and they want a king. And so God relents, and he tells Samuel to give them what they want. That takes us then to chapter 9. It says this, there was a a man named Kish, verse 2. Kish had a son, and the son's name was Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. I mean, think of that. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Now, think about above the waterline characteristics, right? Think about it. I mean, if you're on a boat, I mean, you can have a beautiful sail. I mean, you can have the deck, tidy, ropes, tied in circles. You can have, the whole, you can have everything looking really good. And you can think to yourself, we're ready to go. This ship, this boat is in good shape. The people of Israel thought this, when they saw Saul and they saw how handsome he was, and when they saw that he was a head taller than anyone else, they thought to themselves, this is our guy. Not only is he like on the cover of GQ, but give this dude a sword and look out. He's a mighty man. He's a warrior. That's who they wanted to have as their king, which I think leads us to the first question. And then the question is this, what's important to us? If someone was to ask you, when you look at people, what do you value? When you just see somebody, what's the first thing that you think? 
What are the things that rise to the top? What do you value? What do you esteem in other people? What do you want your kids to embody? What do you want them to have? It pushes us to ask these kinds of questions. Because the people of Israel were doing this. They were saying, we're judging you, Saul, based on your looks. And you look good. You're handsome. And you look strong. You're muscular. And you're, you're tall. And so we think you'd be great. Now, I know that you and I never judge people on their looks. We would never be so superficial, right? But God was saying to them, he was saying, not only should you not do this, not like, no, 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 but it's almost like God was saying to them, Israel, it's just not going to go well for you. Israel, if you do this, if you care more about above-the-waterline issues, it's not going to serve the country well. And so you fast forward and you find out that it doesn't end well. You find out that under Saul's leadership, what did they do? Well, they lost battles. They, and when you lose battles, what happens? Lives get lost. And when lives get lost, you got all sorts of issues, obviously. But also when you lose battles, you get displaced, which causes all sorts of issues. And so things are not going well. And so God says to Saul, this one that they wanted to be their king, this one that looked so good above the waterline, it says, but now your kingdom, Saul, it will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, key verse for us this morning, and has appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so that takes us now to 1 Samuel 16. So that's kind of the setup. Israel, again, you think of all of these judges, you think of Israel revolting, saying, no, 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 we don't want to be ruled by a judge. Give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. And we even want a king like everybody else. We want that king to look good, so they bring up Saul. But that's not God's man. That's not the one that had a heart that was connected to God. And so in chapter 16, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Like, how long are you going to be burdened that he's not the guy? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill up your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And then it says this in verse 2. It says, but Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. He's saying, hey, I'm going to give you away. This is what you can say. When you show up, this is why you're there. You're going to have a worship little uh, celebration. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. Uh, that's okay. Uh, verse, and I will show you what to do. And then it says this, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So the Lord gives Samuel a way into this. But he doesn't want to go. He's afraid. Well, they're gonna, Saul's going to kill me if he finds out that I've gone to anoint another king. Verse 4, then it says this. It says, Samuel did what the Lord said, though, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they trembled when they met him, and they asked, do you come in peace? Now they want to know, because again, Samuel is a national level leader. Samuel's a guy that they were wondering, Lord, are you bringing judgment on us? Samuel, do you come in peace or are you about to drop the hammer? What's going on? And so then it says this in verse 5. It says, uh, yeah, Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he says, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Verse 6. 
It says, then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands, stands here before the Lord. So think about it. Samuel's in the same boat. So in walks the first son of, of, of Jesse's, of Bethlehem, and right away Samuel thinks, good looking. Yeah, surely. I mean, surely this, is, surely this is the one. And then it says this in verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or, or his height, for I have rejected him. This is our key verse for this morning. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Other people, they want a king or they want a ruler that, man, this high and tidy, everything looks good. But the Lord is looking for something that's below the waterline. The, the Lord is looking for something much deeper that will drive you much further. The Lord is looking for something that you can't manufacture in a heartbeat. It actually takes time. I came across this definition of the heart years ago. I was uh, listening to this guy, uh, a leadership author and a coach, Dan Webster, and, and this is how he defines the heart. He says this. He says, it's that place inside of you that defines who you are, what you believe, how you decide, and which direction you take. It's where wisdom is birthed and the ability to enjoy life begins. Your heart is where your deepest passions reside and the most meaningful dreams originate. It's where you carry the people you love, and it's where God speaks to you. Your best performance comes from your heart. Dallas Willard refers to it like this. He says, your heart, church, he says, your heart is like the executive center of you. It's like the, it's the core of the core. It's what truly drives you. I try to take one of our kids on a date each week. It's really not a big deal, but we all, we look forward to it. The kid looks forward to it. I really look forward to it. And so it's usually just a trip to the donut shop and back, and it's like not very long and costs $3.50. It's great. So we take these dates, though, every week. I love them. And, uh, but one question that a mentor of mine taught me years and years and years ago, and I, I try to ask this question every time I go on a date with one, with one of the kids. I'll say to them, usually as we're driving back, I'll say, I'll say, hey, how's your heart? Now, the reason I like to ask this question is this. If you answer the question honestly, how is your heart? It cuts through all sorts of things. It cuts right to the core, and it gives me a very good window into the deepest part of my child's life. How is your heart? God is saying this. How is your heart? Where, where, where is the deepest part of you? Is it in a good place? Verse 8, then it says this. It says, then Jesse called Ahinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. So the story kind of goes on here. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had uh, uh, Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, just hang with the text here a little bit. So then it says this. So he, Samuel, asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Like, I asked you to bring me all of your sons. Are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. 
And he is tending the sheep, which is interesting. In the the original language, it means this. He is tending out with the sheep. In other words, he is with them, and that is just what he does, and that is who he is. Basically saying, not a whole lot. And so Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep, and Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, time out. This is an odd family moment in the text. Have you ever been picked last for a team? I always got picked last in basketball. I wish we could just have a collective game here and you would pick me first. It would make my my, my life, you know? But I was always, you know how that feels to be picked last, right? Imagine though this, can you imagine if your dad, when they were asking for your sons, didn't even remember you? I mean, play this out a little bit. Hey, Dad, should we call in uh, David? He's out with the sheep. No, no, I think, I think we're good. <laughs> I don't think he's the king, for sure, you know. We're not even going to get to seven, let alone eight, you know, like, we're fine. You know? I mean, imagine that. I mean, this would have led to some serious time with somebody on an expensive couch for some very expensive therapy, right? I mean, think about this. Yeah, I remember the time. One time my dad, oh, he didn't even pick me. As, uh, he didn't even, actually, he didn't even think of me. He like, like, he got to the last pick and he said, he like turned away and said, let's just play. Didn't he want me on the squad? This is major dysfunction that's, that's happening here. A family dynamic that you just can't gloss over. You got to go, whoa, this is odd. This is weird. The nation of Israel was all about externals. They wanted Saul, Saul to be their king. And now Samuel comes in, and Jesse is the exact same way. He looks at his sons, and what does he do? He thinks, oh, this one will get it. Oh, this one will will get it. But none of them do. God is looking for something different. And when God looks at you, God's not looking for you just to live a life that's just perfect and tidy, and you've got it all together. No. Church, hear this. God wants your heart. God says, no, no, no. There's something below the waterline. People can't see it, like you have to work on it in secret. People, people don't even know that you're doing it, but boy, you can, when somebody has their heart in a good place, everybody can tell. That's what God's getting at. And so it says this then in verse 12. It says, so he sent for him, for David, and he had him brought in. And, and it says that he, was a glo- that he was glowing with health and he had a, a fine appearance and he was hands- and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So they would pour oil and they would anoint him. And then it says this in verse 13. It says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. <clears throat> and from that day forward on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. And sure enough, his brothers were like, we're so excited, David, that you're the king. No, not at all. Instead, God looks at Israel, he looks at this family, and he says, you guys are looking for the wrong thing. You had your eyes on the wrong ball, and and you got it in Saul. You rejected me as king. I didn't come like that. I won't come like that. And you rejected me, and now you get these brothers before you, and what do you do? You reject You reject the one that would be in the line of Jesus Christ. Think about this, church. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The one that got overlooked. 
the one that didn't get called in, the one that was just faithfully out doing his thing. If you ever get tired of faithfully doing what seems mundane, but you do it with character and integrity, and you work hard on, God, who do you want me to be? And you hear from God regularly, don't ever tire of doing that. Because God's going to use that. That's like that 8,000-pound ballast that keeps you going. And it keeps you going until that day God taps you on the shoulder and says, I've been preparing you all along for something great. You know, oftentimes you'll hear a coach say after an important victory, a coach will say something like this. A coach will say, I love how you played tonight. You played with all of your hearts. And anybody listening to that on the team knows that's the greatest compliment that they could have received. But if the coach would have said, oh, you guys did great tonight. Man, your skills were sharper than I've ever seen them before. Your jerseys, ha, those things were shining tonight, fellas. I mean, the whoa, the team would be like, uh, can we have the heart compliment back, right? There's nothing greater, is there? It is the center of who you are. And so God is reminding us this morning, think about this, your heart is worth the time it takes to have your heart in a soft place before God. I think it is very wise for you to spend time sharpening your skills, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a coach, whether you're a business owner, whatever you are, a parent, I think it's smart to sharpen your skills. But even smarter than that, what comes before that? It's your heart. It's below the waterline. It's the stuff that nobody sees. David put it like this. He, he gave his heart time. He said this in Psalm uh, 139, verse 23. David said this. He said, search me, O God. And then he said this, and know my heart. God, you, I want you to know my heart. And Lord, I want you to test me. And I want you to know, are there any anxious thoughts within me? What David was saying is this. God, you're picking me because I give my heart time. I tend to the things that matter most. In Psalm 63, David said this. He said, my soul, God, what does it do? My soul, it thirsts for you. Everything meaningful goes back to the heart. If you want a meaningful marriage, it starts with the heart. If you want to have an impact in the lives of people, give your heart time. If you want to be a parent that, that raises up the next generation, you want to do your very best with that. Don't so much worry about you know, managing behavior and things like that. That'll come and you'll do that well. But give yourself as a parent time on your heart. Who do you want to raise more? A Saul? They look good? Or do you want to raise a David? Their heart is, is connected to Christ. Matthew chapter 15, I love this. Uh, it, says these, it says this, that even our words, the words that we speak, what are they? They are an overflow of our heart. You know, I was even thinking of us as a church, Brookside, as we think about the city, as we think about opening that care center, as we think about what's next, how do we uh, continue to unleash unprecedented amounts of compassion in our city, do you know what that begins with? It does not begin with clever plans. It begins with a church that we rally together and we say, God, might our hearts be connected and soft to you. This is why one of our passions as a church is that every person, every day, would spend 15 minutes alone with God. I loved how Rob, total coincidence that he did this. What did he start this service by saying, hey, I read this morning in Psalm 77. That was our reading, 365 for today. And God spoke to me 
just the same way that he spoke to Rob. I, I wrote a very simple thing in the top of my journal this morning. Remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Now, here's what I want to say to you, church. If you will open God's word and you will just let it sink into your heart a little bit. Here's my goal. When, my goal when I open God's word is just one thing, God. God, would you give me just one insight? God, would you mold me in just one way? I'm a pretty simple guy, so don't, don't flood me with a ton. But God, is there one thing you have for me today? You know what that is? Church, that's heart time. And so let me ask you the question that I ask myself, that I ask my kids. Church, how's your heart? Where's your heart at? When you think about your life, when you say, I got it together up here, but, but how are you below the waterline? Um, if you, seriously, if, if you want to be a person that has maximum impact, if you want to be a person that you'd say, gosh, I want to be a parent that makes a difference. I, I, I want to go into my workplace and I want to see lives. I want to do all, I want to be used by God in a mighty way. It is not about this. It's about below the waterline. And so might we be the kind of people, Solomon said it like this. The last thing I'll leave you with, Solomon said this. In Proverbs chapter 4, he said, above all else, here it is, guard your heart. Like, guard, like whoa, look out, where's my, is my heart? Don't mess my heart. I'm nurturing my heart. I care about my heart. Guard your heart. Why? For, it is the, for everything you do flows from it. Some translations say it is the wellspring of your life. So let me pray for us, and let's just say, God, we bring you our hearts. And I want to say to you, maybe you're here this morning, and you've never, like, given your heart to God. Again, your heart is the command. It's the control center of you. This kind of life that cares about below the waterline, it begins by saying, God, I give you my heart. And so, Lord, we come to you now, and we just pray, and we say, God, we give you us. We give you our hearts. We give you our souls. And maybe, Lord, there's somebody in the crowd even today that would say, for the first time, Lord, I give you my heart. I trust in Jesus Christ. And, Father, we would say, Lord, there are things above the waterline that are important, but today, God, remind us that the most important thing that we can do is to choose to protect and to guard and to nurture the wellspring of our lives, our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Church, let's stand together and we'll sing.